speaking of life, uh, as you are aware, uh, the fall of Afghanistan is, is unbelievable. Uh, we see it on the news. We see people crawling on aircrafts on the outside of planes and falling to their death because they want to get out of that land. We have missionaries. I've been told that the missionaries from the Assemblies of God have been removed successfully, but I can't say that for other missionary endeavors. I don't know what's going on. Um, I saw a note from a pastor online, and he was communicating with one of the missionaries, and he said, we're going to gather and we're going to die in the name of Jesus. And you know, we got so much going on in our country, so much garbage, and we're divided and we're angry with each other about masks, about whether to take a, an immunization or not, about whether to vote Republican or Democrat. We're so wrapped up into politics right now. I don't know if you've ever gotten that or not. And I realize it's politics and health and everything else. But, you know, I want you to try to put yourself in the position of those poor people in that country. They didn't ask to be born there, but they were born there. And, and now this group of, of thugs, the Taliban, are going to come in and they're just, they're just raping and pillaging and killing and beheading and mutilating and, and just destroying human life. And if that doesn't rise something up in you, I don't know whatever would, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to really pray for those people, even though they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. There are Christians there. There are Christian workers there. There are still government officials there. We need to pray for their safety. But we need to pray for those people who just want to live a life like you do. They'd give their right arm to live in America. They would give anything to live in this land that we complain about and we're so upset about all the time and we're always on the edge of anger. We've got to put things back into perspective, folks. We really, really do. We still live in the most blessed land in the, in the world. And though we may not agree with everything that's going on, you have freedom, you have liberties, you're coming here to church, you can worship God in spirit and in truth and in complete freedom, and no squad's going to come in and take your life, God forbid. Let's just keep things into perspective, shall we? And let's pray for those poor, pathetic, pitiful people that don't know if they're going to live another day just because somebody has a gun and feels they have the power and can just kill randomly. Let's just pray real quickly if we can. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Can I have some prayer warriors pray along with me, please? I don't want to just hear my voice. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and I pray for the people of Af Afghanistan. In the name of Jesus, we bind that evil that is, that is just ravaging that country. We pray, Father, that the people of God would stand strong for who you are and that you would defeat that enemy, Lord, in one way, shape, or form. We ask for strength. We ask for encouragement in their hearts as they look ahead and don't even know what their future holds. And God, during this time, that they might cry out to the one true God, the only one who can help them in their situation. So, Father, we, we plead to you this morning to help those people. They are people. They are children of God. You love them as much as you love us. You care about them as much as you care about us. They don't live in this country. They live in a place that is so much more disadvantaged than we have it. And yet they are human beings. So we pray your grace, your mercy, your protection would be upon them. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for indulging me in that. A lot of crazy things going on in our world today. And we can't just act like they're not happening. Our weapon is prayer. And if you haven't been praying for the things that are going on in our nation or what's going on around the world, then you need to start praying because that is our weapon. We don't have guns. We don't have explosives. We don't have bombs. We have the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God on our side. So let's keep that in mind. There was a man who was involved in an accident, and he slightly injured his shoulder, but he decided that he was going to fake a greater injury in hopes that he could stick the insurance company for a nice little sum of money. So he hired a lawyer to represent him, and he proceeded in court with his plan. And when the trial began, the uh, attorney that represented the insurance company uh, asked the injured man to stand up, and he said, Mr. Smith, please show us how much your shoulder was damaged in this accident by extending your arm upward as far as your shoulder will allow it to go. And he raised his hand about this high. And he said, that's as far as it will go. Immediately, the lawyer said, thank you, Mr. Smith. Now will you please show us how far you were able to raise your arm before the accident without thinking the man obliged. And he raised his hand all the way up to heaven and he brought it down like this. Immediately, the judge pounded the gavel and he said, case dismissed. Now, as simple as that sounds, apparently this is a tactic that is used by attorneys in the court of law. They nonchalantly ask you a series of, of rudimentary questions, uh, calmly and one right after another, and because the way that our brains are wired, it brings forth responses that we had not planned. In this case, it brought about an honest response. A person will often respond to a question like that before their mind actually realizes that they've been set up. Well, this is a legal tactic that Jesus was very familiar with because the scribes and the Pharisees who were the first century version of lawyers, they used this tactic on him or a version of it all the time. Of course, since Jesus was who he claimed to be, these traps never worked. In fact, they always backfired on his critics and they gave further validation of Jesus' claims. Let me share a couple of examples. In Matthew twenty-two seventeen, it tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus and they asked him this question. The scripture says, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right, Jesus, to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, I'm sure down through the ages, many Christians have wished Jesus had said, no, my followers do not have to pay taxes. But he didn't. Verses 18 through 21 tell us how he responded. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is on this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Another example is found in John chapter 7. 
It's one of the scriptures that we covered in last week's message. It's when these religious lawyers had accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath by doing the work of healing a man. In John 7, verse 23 through 34, Jesus said, Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, I could go on citing more examples like this because, as I said, the scribes and the Pharisees, they regularly used this trap tactic on our Lord, but it never worked. He was never caught by surprise by any of their sneaky legal maneuvering. He always knew what to say in order to prove his innocence while at the same time he exposed their ignorance. And perhaps the best example of this we find in today's scripture text. I want you to take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 7. We are going to be reading the very last verse in chapter 7, verse 52, and then, excuse me, verse 53, and then on to chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen, and you can follow along with us. I'll be reading today from the New International Version. John 7, 53, on through 8, verse 11. The scriptures say, Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, if your Bible is like my Bible, somewhere before verse 53, it says something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 8:53 through 8, chapter, verse 1 through 11. How many of you have that notation in your Bible? Okay. This is a cautionary statement that is there because these 12 verses are not in some of the oldest manuscripts of John's gospel. And the reason for that is that there was a time in the life of the church where the leadership thought it best to leave out these verses. Apparently, some of those in the early Christian church were embarrassed at how graciously Jesus treated this woman. They thought this account might be interpreted that Jesus was light on sin. 
And so they decided to omit it. In fact, we actually know that this is the reason because in St. Augustine's writings, he tells us what happened. He says that this story was removed even though it was believed to be authentic. And the reason, I quote, some were of slight faith and also to avoid scandal. So that's why you have that note in your Bible in case you're wondering. In the very early days, the people who, who edited the New Testament They thought that text was a dangerous story. They believed it might just be justification to hold hold a very light view on the act of adultery, so they just left it out. But you need to understand something, and that is that in that day, Christians were living in a world of paganism. What I mean is it would have been very easy for a new convert to, to lapse back into their old lifestyle, their own way of life. And I guess as the years rolled by and some of the church became more established, the leaders thought it was now safe to put that scripture back into the book. And that's why you'll find it in newer manuscripts like the one that we read today. And why not? Because this account is absolutely authentic and it should be included. In fact, some of the early church fathers wrote as early as 100 AD that they viewed it as being an authentic, documented part of Jesus' ministry. So what I just read and what we're going to talk about this morning really did happen. And it has truly become one of the most famous stories found in all of the scriptures. I know I say that a lot, but this is an important one. And I think that that is for two very important reasons. First of all, it shows us just one more example of how brilliant Christ Jesus was. And secondly, it shows us God's amazing grace in action through the way that that Jesus responded so kindly, so gracefully, so gently to this woman who was caught in sin. So with that behind us, let's go ahead and and get back to this story. You'll notice that the very first two verses we read are quite interesting, verse 53, then they all went home, and chapter 8, verse 1, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Understand, the events on, on this text occurred in October, which meant it would have been cold at night, especially in the hills surrounding Jerusalem. This tells us that unlike many of his followers who had homes and warm beds to go home to, Jesus, God in the flesh, he didn't. So he spent many nights alone out in the elements, huddled up with his robe wrapped around him and probably sleeping under some olive tree. This confirms what Jesus said in Matthew 8.20, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I point this out to remind you just how far Jesus came when he lowered himself to become a man, to be born into this earth to save you and I from our sins. He can indeed, as the scriptures say, sympathize with all of our weaknesses. Well, after one of those nights spent out in the cold, The next morning, Jesus found himself teaching in the temple courts. And suddenly, the the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they show up with this woman. And they forced her to stand before our Lord. They claimed that she had been caught in the act of adultery and asked Jesus what he thought should be done. 
In essence, they were asking, should the law be applied here, Jesus? I mean, shouldn't this woman be stoned to death? You be the judge. What should we do with this adulteress? Now, as people who live in a very morally lax culture, like we do living in the United States of America, we've got to understand that in the eyes of Jewish law, adultery was a very, very serious crime. Back then, the rabbi said every Jew must die before he will commit idolatry, murder, or adultery. So in their minds, adultery was one of the big, biggest, one of the biggest three sins a person could ever commit. Also understand that the law about adultery was very clear. The penalty was death. There were different ways to carry out this penalty, but death was the end result. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Now you'll notice that the method of, of death is not specified here. But if you go just a little bit further into Deuteronomy chapter 22, the, the penalty of death by stoning is stated when this sin is committed by, and the scripture says, a girl who is already betrothed. If you remember the story of Mary and Joseph, betrothal was the engagement. It was as good as being married. Once you were betrothed, you were committed to that individual. The Mishnah, the Jewish codified law, states that the penalty for adultery is strangulation. I'm saying this from a strictly legal viewpoint. The scribes and the Pharisees were in fact correct. The woman deserved, according to the law, death for her sin. But I think it's important to point something out very important here. It would have been very hard, pretty much impossible, to catch someone committing this sin unless it was some kind of a setup. I mean, this whole event had the smell of entrapment written all over it. You see, the Jewish law was amazingly and embarrassingly precise, especially in describing exactly what had to be seen in order for someone to be charged with this capital offense or any capital offense. In fact, there had to be multiple witnesses whose testimonies agreed on every sordid detail. So this adultery charge had to have been planned. And in fact, I think the man that was involved was a part of the plan, was a part of the setup. We all know that it takes two people to tango. So where's the man? Why hasn't he been brought before Jesus? Why aren't they pointing out his sin? And their devious trap, when you think about it, was a good one. Because it looked like no matter how Jesus responded, no matter what his judgment was, he was going to face difficulties. He was going to be in trouble. If Jesus said, yes, stone the woman, two things would happen. First, he would forever lose his reputation that he had gained for being a loving and a merciful God. And never again could he be called, as he was called many times, the friend of sinners. And if that wasn't bad enough, he would be in trouble with the Roman authorities. Why? because the Jews did not have the power to carry out the death sentence on anyone. That is exactly why they, they brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate and not to Caiaphas 
in order to demand his crucifixion. They didn't have the power or the authority to make it happen. On the other hand, if Jesus said that this woman should be pardoned, it could be said that he was teaching not to obey the law of Moses. Of course, he would lose his popularity with the people who were enamored of Moses. So from a man's perspective, strictly from a human perspective, it was a good trap. It was truly a devious plot. No matter what Jesus decided, he was going to face some blowback. It reminds me of the story of of King Arthur and Queen Guinevere. King Arthur's most trusted knight, Lancelot, had an affair with the queen. Mordred, who caught Guinevere and Lancelot in their unfaithfulness, literally taunted the king. Much like our biblical story, Lancelot escaped. But Guinevere, she was captured and sentenced to death by the courts. Well, King Arthur is called upon to give the signal to carry out her execution. And this man, Mordred, he he mocks him with a wicked kind of joy. He says, Arthur, what a magical dilemma. Let her die, your life is over. Let her live, and your life is a fraud. Which will it be, Arthur? Do you kill the queen, or do you kill the law? Just like Mordred was with King Arthur, these scribes and Pharisees were quite certain that they had Jesus caught in some kind of an unescapable trap. And I am sure, I am certain that they had been working out the details on this for quite some time. So what would Jesus do? What could Jesus do? John tells us that like a a backyard quarterback drawing out a play in the dirt, Jesus began to write something on the ground with his finger. Now think of it. This is the only account that we have of Jesus writing anything. And furthermore, he wrote it on the least permanent surface of his day. He chose as his medium a pallet of sand where footsteps or or wind or rain would soon erase everything that he wrote. So there are two questions that pop into my inquiry kind of a mind. First, why did Jesus do this? Why did he stoop down and write? Why would this be his first response to this high-pressure situation? Some manuscripts give us a hint of an answer by adding this phrase. He wrote as though he did not hear them. This infers that perhaps Jesus had had stooped down on the ground as a way to deliberately force the Pharisees to repeat their charges once again. And in doing so, they would hear what they were doing and they would realize that what they were doing was, was so cruel and that they might ultimately come to their senses. Well, that could be true, but I really don't know. I don't know why Jesus wrote. None of us do. It doesn't tell us. But I have a second more important question. What did Jesus write? And there are several theoretical answers to this one. Some say that Jesus wrote the words that are written in Daniel chapter 25. Mene, mene, tekel parson. These are the same words that God's fingers wrote on Belshazzar's wall. And they meant this. You have been weighed in balance and found wanting. There are others who think Jesus wrote 
the words of Jeremiah 17, 13, where it says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. My favorite interpretation, however, comes from the Armenians. They say that Jesus wrote down a list of particular sins, and they were all sins that these Pharisees were guilty of. And this makes complete sense to me because the Greek word used here is katagraphian. It means to write down a record against someone. You remember, you may remember that in his movie about Jesus' life, an old movie, Cecil B. DeMille followed this line of thinking because there's a particular, this particular scene in the movie production, Jesus is depicted as spelling out the names of various sin, murder, pride, greed, lust. And each, each time Jesus wrote a word in this film readaptation or whatever you say it, like all of, uh, the, the more that he read these things and, and wrote these things, the Pharisees started to walk away. But even though this is my favorite, like all others, this is just complete and total speculation. All we know is that Jesus paused, he did not speak, he kneeled down, and he wrote words or symbols onto the ground. Well, then John tells us what happens next in verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. By the way, the, the words without sin can be translated as without sinful desire. It was sort of like saying, yes, you can stone her, but only if you never wanted to do the same things yourselves. And after Jesus says those words, he began to write on the ground again. And as he did, you could hear the rocks being dropped to the ground one at a time. As this woman's accusers started to leave, the, oldest, the older men left first, perhaps because they had more sin to, remember, to be reminded of in their lifetime. And then they were followed by the younger men until it was only Jesus and this woman who remained there, plus the crowd. I want you to think about the outcome of this legal trickery that was going on here. Instead of passing judgment on this woman, Jesus passed judgment on the judges. No one remained there to condemn her. The witnesses had all disappeared. Legally, there was no longer a case. The roles had been reversed. Instead of being taught a thing or two by these experts in religious law, Jesus used their actions to teach both them and us two very vital kingdom principles that I'd like to share with you this morning. And here's the first one. When it comes to sin, God's word is not meant to be used to trap people, but instead to set them free. Can I get an amen? amen. You know, I think it is cool that in Jesus' rebuttal to their legal maneuvering, he proved that he had a better grasp of God's laws than he did, and why not? Because he was the author of those laws, right? These religious lawyers, these experts in the law of God mistakenly thought 
that, that scripture was a tool designed to make them look good and to make other people look bad. They didn't bring this woman to Jesus because they were zealous to uphold the law against adultery. They didn't bring her because they were scandalized necessarily by her actions. All they cared about was, was using scripture to set a trap so that it would help them to get rid of Jesus, who was their greatest threat. Have you ever met somebody like that? Have you ever met a Christian who acts like some religious policeman? Oh yeah, oh yeah, we all have. They seem focused on throwing the Bible at others, continually pointing out other people's shortcomings and other people's sin, even calling redeemed people unsaved. Like it says in the Bible, they are trying to remove a sliver from their eye, from the other person's eye, when they got a stinking railroad tie sticking in their own that they need to yank out. Listen, God's word was not meant to be used this way. God inspired the writing of the scriptures and those words to free us from our sins and not to trap us. Because we were sinners already trapped. Without Jesus, we are already enslaved. I don't know if you've ever been to a tractor pull. I've seen them on TV. I've never been at one in person. But I understand in certain parts of the country, they're, they're all the rage. What I find interesting is that these tractors that are used in these events don't look much like a tractor, do they? They're really more like a dragster than a piece of farm equipment. The only thing that really makes them look tractor-like are those huge wheels behind, like a normal tractor. Well, in the competition, these high-powered machines are hitched to a, a wedge-shaped trailer, and the trailer, as they start going down the, the track, creates more and more resistance the further that it pulls down the course. And the tractor starts racing towards the finish line by pulling this wedge, but quickly it starts to labor. And often, the, that machine behind you will actually stall out over the ever-increasing increasing resistance that's been put upon it. The wheels of the tractor often spin so rapidly that the tractor becomes literally stuck in the mud, spinning its wheels and unable to continue moving forward. And it is not until the trailer is unhitched that it can actually free itself from the dirt and move again. The reason I share that little tidbit with you is because it provides, I think, a very clear illustration of what sin is like in your and my life. It drags us down, just like that weighted trailer behind that tractor, and, and, it, and it drags us to the point where we can no longer move forward. It enslaves us to the weight of sin, to the weight of the guilt and all the shame that goes along with our sin. We feel condemned. We feel hopeless, just like this poor woman caught in the act of adultery that was brought before Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand me here. God's law does put a spotlight on sin. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, as he discussed sin in the law, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. But get this. He says, nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. 
The Bible opens our eyes so that even in an immoral world in which we live, where sin is commonplace, we can see clearly the difference between right and wrong. It shows us our sin, and it reveals our guilt. But it doesn't stop there. The Bible uh, tells us that Jesus came to set us free. He came to make our forgiveness possible. Jesus came to unhitch that weighted trailer of, of sin and guilt that is dragging us down, and also to empower us to say no to sin. Think of how free that woman felt when Jesus, God in the flesh, spoke these words to her, I do not condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, in my years in ministry, I've had people come in to see me in my office because they've done something very wrong. And as they begin to pour out their, their hearts by confessing their actions, you can almost see the burden of sin that they're carrying. Even their body language clearly shows this. They're stooped over. Their heads are often in their hands as they cry. And at that moment, it is so awesome to be able to share with them the words in, in 1 John 1, 19, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then when we bow our head and they're able to do that, you can almost see that burden is being literally lifted off of them. They have been freed from the guilt of their actions. That's how the Bible is supposed to be used, ladies and gentlemen, not to trap people, but to free people. Listen, if you feel burdened or if you feel trapped this morning or enslaved by your sin, listen to these words from the scriptures. John 8, 34, the second half of that verse, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But he continues in verse 35 and 36. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son has set you free, you are free indeed, right? Romans 8. That's okay, you can clap for the scriptures. Go ahead. Romans 8, 1 through 3, Paul writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. The Bible is not a lock to bind us, ladies and gentlemen. The, 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 the Bible is a key in order to set us free. Jesus freed that woman that day by dying in her place. And he did the same for you and I. That is the central message. That is the central theme of the book of all books. Well, there is a second kingdom principle that we see in Jesus' reaction regarding sin. Sinners are people and not things. What I mean is these religious lawyers looked at this poor woman not as a broken individual. They looked at her 
as nothing more than a thing to be used to fulfill their reprehensible purposes. The truth was they weren't really even interested in the law. They didn't care about her sin. They just wanted to trap Jesus. And she was the thing that made it possible. She was the bait. Well, as you can see, Jesus refused to treat her in that way. He didn't point his finger at her, affirming her sin. He focused on her accusers. He took the focus off of this poor woman because first and foremost, that's what she was, a woman. She was a human being. She was not a thing. You know, as human beings, we have this thing that we do whereby we tend to judge people by their actions, by their sin, and it can lead us to look right past their humanity. And in doing so, it allows us to look at them as a thing and to quit looking at them as a person, as a human being. We say things like, well, she's a drug addict, or well, he cheated on his wife. He's a bum because he can't hold down a job. Oh, she sleeps around. And all of these titles, all these things that, that we say that we know about people, either their current or their past sinful life, it serves to dehumanize them in our own mind. And if you've ever found yourself affected in this way, here's one of the best suggestions I've ever heard that might bring a change to your kind of thinking. If you ever find yourself looking at a bad situation involving someone who in your mind lacks righteousness, who lacks credibility, and because of that, you find yourself lacking compassion, you can't even look at the situation with any kind of a, a proper perspective because you've already made up your mind, you can't even look at them as a human being, but instead you look at them as a thing. The best thing, I, I, I read this, and, and it's helped me. The best thing for you to say is, that is someone else's daughter. That is someone else's son. That is someone's brother. That is somebody's sister. That person was once a, a little baby who was loved and who was nurtured by someone like me. And they are deeply loved with the kind of love that only a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or a family member could understand. Most importantly, this is a person who God created and, and who God loves as much as he loves me and who he desperately wants to see receive salvation. We've got to begin to see everyone as a person. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. The Pharisees only saw a thing because in spite of her guilt, Jesus saw a person. He saw a woman who had once been a little girl. His actions remind us of our first response towards someone who has sinned, or excuse me, his actions remind us that our first response towards someone who sins is not to cast judgment, but instead to offer pity, even empathy as fellow sinners. Our first thought should be, 
How can I help this person? But unfortunately, most of the time, we don't even look at people who are down and out because we believe that they are all victims of their own poor choices, their own sinful choices. And if we do take the time to look at them, we often look at them as hopeless failures. We often perceive them as some kind of an unredeemable thing, of like a car that is rotting away in some junkyard somewhere. In his book, Outlive Your Life, Max Licato writes this, Stanley Ship served as a father to my young faith. He was 33 years my senior and blessed with a hawkish nose, thin lips, a rim of white hair, and a heart as big as the Midwest. His business cards, which he gave out to those who requested and even those who didn't, simply read, Stanley Ship, your servant. I spent my, post, my first post-college year under his tutelage. One of our trips took us to a small church in rural Pennsylvania for a conference. He and I happened to be the only two people at the building when a drifter wearing alcohol like a cheap perfume knocked on the door. He recited his victim spiel, overqualified for work, unqualified for pension, lost bus ticket, bad back. His kids in Kansas didn't care. If bad breaks were rock and roll, this guy was Elvis. I crossed my arms, smirked, and gave Stanley a get a load of this glance, this guy kind of a glance. Stanley didn't return it. He devoted every optic nerve to the drifter. Stanley saw no one else but him. How long, I remember wondering, since anyone looked this fellow square in the face. The meandering saga finally stopped and Stanley led the men into the church kitchen and prepared him a plate of food and a sack of groceries. As we watched him leave, Stanley blinked back a tear and responded to my unsaid thoughts. Max, I know he's probably lying, but what if just one part of his story was true? We both saw the man. I saw right through him. Stanley saw deep into him. There is something fundamentally good about taking time to see a person. Have you ever made Max Licato's mistake? I have. If I'm not careful, I can easily become judgmental and look at sinners as things. We get a lot of people who come into our church office every week looking for money, looking for all kinds of things, and they have the same kind of a story. And they are words and actions that truly show me that they're not being honest with me. I mean, rarely do you see authenticity in their explanations of why they need help. Some tell me they haven't had a drink in over a month, and yet I can smell the alcohol in their breath. I've been told that they were ready to move into an apartment, and a landlord stole their deposit, and now they're asking me to put them up in a hotel for a couple nights. I've been told that as a Christian and as a pastor, I'm obliged to meet their financial needs. I've also been told that they are willing to work for help, and so I've offered for them to come back the next day to do a task here at the church, and they don't show up. I've offered help and have been told that I should be ashamed at the little amount of help that I've been able to bless them with. I've heard about every possible story imaginable, and every one of them points 
on a surface and a human level to poor decision-making and an unwillingness to accept that reality. In those kinds of encounters, it can become very easy for me to cease looking at people like this as real people. And if I'm not careful, I look at them as con artists. I look at them as interruptions to my day. And the truth is, anytime I do that, it's a sin. Because no matter what their actions are, they're people. They are someone's son. They are someone's daughter. They are someone's father. They are someone's mother. They are someone's brother. They are someone's sister. They are people, and they're not things. And they, every one of them are precious to our Heavenly Father. And in his eyes, they are equal to the value of the life of God's only son. So what about you? What do you do when you see people who are trapped in sin? What do you do when you see someone walking out on the streets stoned out of their mind? What do you do when you see some guy or some woman carrying everything that they own in a grocery cart, walking aimlessly all around town? What do you do when you see someone taking a public stand that, for an issue that goes completely against what you believe and it completely what the Bible states? What do you see when someone is passed out on the sidewalk in a drug or alcohol-induced blackout? What do you see? Matthew 9.36 tells us what Jesus saw when he looked at sinners. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion means to be moved down to one's bowels. Did you know that? It means to see people and almost literally feel their hurt deep down to the core of your being. Well, that day in the temple courts, Jesus saw this woman who was enslaved by sin. He saw a person who was shamed by her actions. And because of that, as the only one qualified to cast the first stone, he refused. Jesus told her to leave her life of sin, and he refused to condemn her. And instead, only a few months later, he did condemn her for her sins, but he did it as he carried her sin to the cross by himself. He carried her sin and her shame so that she could receive forgiveness and live a different kind of life and, in addition, say no to sin. What a gracious God we serve. Scott, will you come forward? Help me close this down. I'd like you all to stand to your feet if you would. I don't know what this message has spoken to you this morning. I know what it did for me as I prepared this week. Maybe you're here and maybe you are watching online and you're currently carrying around a burden of some sin. And the heaviness of that sin is really, really weighing you down. You need some relief. And you need to be set free from that sin. 
The way to do that is through confession, confessing your sin before God, asking him to forgive you for what you've done. And just like that woman in John chapter eight, Jesus is not going to condemn you. He's not going to stone you. He's here to love you. And he is here to forgive you. It may not just be one heavy thing that you're carrying around. It may be that you've never invited Jesus to have lordship over your life. You've never confessed your sin. You've never asked him for forgiveness for your sin. And therefore, you've lived your entire life not being free. Oh, you think you are, but you are a captive, my friend. You are locked in a cage called sin, and you can't break your way out. There's nothing you can do to get away from that. This morning, I'm here to tell you that that can all change. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is using today's message to draw attention to an area in your life where you need to change your attitude. You need to change your, your mindset. You need to change your approach. For some of you, you need to change your high and mighty, super spiritual thing that you have about you, where you look at everybody and everybody is lower than you. That is not Christianity, my friend. You have an issue of real pride that you need to take care of. You are a sinner like everybody else. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. The most seasoned Christians still sin in their mind, sometimes in their attitude. And like the pastor, when, when a person comes in and I think he's lying to me and I build up this wall because I don't want to deal with him because I know he's lying. He's lying through his teeth. He lied to me two months ago with the same story. How do I manage that? I've got to ask the Lord to give me wisdom and discernment, but more than anything, I need to ask the Lord to give me a greater level of love, to look at that man in his lies, in all the storytelling he gives me month after month, to know that he is deeply broken. I prayed about it. I said, brother, you come in here and you ask me for help every day, and the thing that you need the most is Jesus Christ. And you can meet him today. And I went through the whole plan of salvation and he didn't bite. He didn't want what I had. He just wanted my money. He just wanted some food. Probably just wanted someone to talk to because I'm sure he doesn't get looked at very much on the street. But maybe God is telling you this morning that you need to change your attitude. You need to change your approach. You need to quit looking at people and instantaneously count them out. Oh, they're going to be that way the rest of their life. There's no hope. I'm not even going to stop. I'm not going to help. When it might be your act of kindness and your act of love that could transform that person's life. We don't know what will happen in an encounter with an individual that the Lord brings together. Sometimes they end beautifully. Sometimes they end, oh, there goes another one. Same old story, same old song and dance. But it is not my job to judge those moments. My job is to be true to my Lord and my job is to speak respectfully and to love them and to help them as best that I can. And I think we've lost the ability to do that as a church. I really do. And I'm not, just talk, I'm not talking High Point Assembly. I'm talking about the American church in general. Yes, we, we give turkeys. Yes, we give out bikes. Yes, we have a food pantry. We do help people with their needs, but I don't know that we're the best at really getting down and dirty and getting to know people. I try to say when I work with people, so tell me your story. I kind of want to know why he's in the situation that he's in, because I feel like it might give me a little bit of a greater understanding of, of what he needs. And maybe I can direct him through scripture 
And I think that's the way that we all need to be. So maybe we need to come to God and we need to say, Lord, open my eyes, open my heart to see what you see, to hear what you hear, not to tune people out because we've already predetermined in our mind that they're useless, that there's no hope for them, that they're just going to be that way until they die. And one day I'm not going to see them out walking on the street and you know, so what? Sometimes people just need a kind word. Sometimes they need a pleasant smile. Sometimes they just need for someone to notice them and have a conversation. As Christ followers, how we respond to these encounters can truly show how much we need to grow. And that's what the Lord dealt with me on this week as I'm preparing for this message. I'm a flawed human being. Did you know that? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Did you know that? I am not perfect and I sin just like you do. Did you know that? I have bad attitudes. I get angry. I say things I shouldn't say. I respond in ways I shouldn't. I think in ways I shouldn't think in situations when, when I'm talking to someone, I really want to light them up. And I bite my tongue and I act pious. And the Lord's already judged me because I've already ripped them apart in my mind. Do you get that? It's not just what you say, it's what you feel. It's what you think. So don't think you're the greatest Christian in the world because you don't say anything. Because if it's all going on inside of you and you're thinking it and you're playing a video in your mind of what you really want to be telling that person, you've just sinned. It's like Jesus said, when you look at a woman and you lust after her, you might as, you've just committed the, the act of adultery because in your mind you did what your body wants to do. Do you get how the mind and actions are connected. So I believe that this sermon today is about our mind. It's about how we respond. It's about how we count people out. It's about how we dis discontinue them or in our mind, you're dead to me. I don't want nothing to do with you. You've lied to me. This is the fourth time you've been in telling me the same story. I'm tired of hearing your story. I've tried to get you to, to serve the Lord. You want nothing to do with it. You know, silver and gold have not I, but what I give you, I give freely. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. And if you want to give them a 20 spot or some food or whatever, that's between you and the Lord. You do that. But don't let them leave without at least giving some encouraging word to them, without letting them see Christ in and through you. I want to open this altar this morning, and whether you'd like to come here today, down here and receive salvation, or whether you want to seek wisdom, whether you would like uh, to present a need to the Lord this morning, or just come down here and give him praise because he's a good God, whether you need his healing touch, you're sick, you found out you had a diagnosis from the doctor this week, or you just need time to connect with him. That's what this altar time is for. When you come down to this altar, it doesn't mean that you're finding salvation. It means you need the Lord. And the truth is we need the Lord more and more each and every day. And sometimes we need to come down and get on our knees and we need to pray that the Lord will strengthen us in these areas that we find ourselves so humanly weak in. So while the worship team sings, you can come forward and kneel here. Me and the other pastors will come and pray behind you. When we're done praying for you, we will close this service in a final prayer.
All those at the altar continue to pray. You can stay here as long as you'd like. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me, please? Father, we thank you for this wonderful day you've given us. I thank you for my church family. I thank you for the power of your written word. I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, you've given us everything we need pertaining to life in the scriptures to show us how to live, how to respond, and today is one of those examples. Father, our hearts cry is that we would become more like you every day. We would be conformed into the image of Christ Jesus more and more each day, that our hearts would break for the things that break your heart, that we would be concerned for the least of these as you are, that we would look at people as human beings, not as things like you do, and that we would step out in faith and test and see that if when we reach out to someone in need, that you aren't there with us through the whole, the whole thing, giving us words to speak, to comfort, and to help that individual. God, let us not close ourselves off to the hurt that's out there, but let us be willing to be instruments to be used by you. And Father, for anyone here today who does not know you, watching online or in this sanctuary, I pray in the name of Jesus, they would have the courage to pray a simple prayer, acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God, the only way to the Father, and asking for forgiveness of their sin, and asking Jesus to have lordship over their life. And Father, we as a church would love to come alongside of them and to help disciple them in their Christian journey. And that they would learn to be, they would first of all be set free from their sin, but they would learn to be able to say no to the sin in the future. Thank you for your word. And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have, that they would be conversations meant to build up and not tear down, that we would shine a bright light in this dark world, would be unmistakable that it's the love of Jesus within us, bringing brightness to dark situations. And Father, when to the point where people would come to us and say, what is different about you? And then you open that door for us to share your goodness with them. I pray that you'll give each one of us an opportunity this week to share your goodness with someone. At a minimum, invite them to church with us. At a maximum, walk them to the finish line. Tell them what it takes to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Father, until we meet together again, I pray that you would keep us safe. Keep us safe from COVID, from sicknesses, from diseases. I pray that you would keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can gather together again as a church family and worship you together. I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for the difference that they make in this community. But Father, we're not satisfied with that. We want to do more. And I pray that you would give us wisdom and power to do that and to do it successfully and to do it better than we've ever done it before. That's my heart's cry. I pray that you would make that the heart's cry of this church. We are here to serve. We are here to help those in need. We are here to share the goodness of Jesus Christ. Let us never forget that. Let that be our mantra every single day. So Father, we thank you for this time together. 
Thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the lives that were touched today. We give you all thanks, all glory, all honor and praise. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.